Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. My guest today is Michelle Cook. She's a human rights lawyer, founder of Indigenous Women's Divestment Delegation to Europe, and a founding member of Water Protector Legal Collective. Here to tell us about her work. Well, yat a a Michelle Cook Yanishye, Hanalatni Nishlint, Bilagana Basishin, Two Bahidashich A Bilagana Dashanali. my name is Michelle Cook. I'm born of the one who walks around you clan of the Dene Nation, and this is how I identify myself as a Dene woman. Uh, thank you so much for having me uh, here today, Amanda. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us, Michelle Cook, and thank you for introducing yourself and where you came from. And I'm really glad that you're here today to tell us about your work. This specific journey um, regarding um, economic indigenous rights, human rights, business and human rights, really started for me in 2016 as a result of uh, Standing Rock. I'm really interested in your work about investment. What does that mean, the Indigenous Women's Divestment Delegation to Europe? Right. Well, the Indigenous Peoples Divestment Delegation or the Indigenous Divestment Delegations to Europe are part of a campaign that I work on, um, which is basically an opportunity that we provide to Indigenous women on the front line to visit financial institutions in Europe. Many of the financial institutions that we visit have investments in extractive industries, in oil and gas, development within Indigenous peoples' territories. And so we take Indigenous peoples who are directly impacted by those investments to financial institutions in Europe to tell them their story and their perspective and then to also request disinvestment of those monies from those companies and investments in renewable energy. How does that process work? How do you decide who to approach and who goes into the rooms to request investment? Thankfully, um, there's quite a few organizations and people who are able to look in Bloomberg terminals, which are financial databases. And they're able to extract from these databases the amount of money that a company is investing in a certain development project. And they're also able to look to see which banks are investing in these companies. So that's how we um, determine where we go. Many of the banks in Europe are invested in development projects in indigenous people's territories. And some of those are Credit Suisse or Deutsche Bank. It's very important for businesses to uh, respect and protect and remedy human rights. And that's what we are um, encouraging them to do and demanding uh, from them. Can you give an example where you've been successful? You know, when we define success, what exactly does that mean? I think we need to challenge that. I think definitely we've been able to get investigations from actors like the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. They're one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world. They um, are a large investor in oil and gas, and they currently are investigating some of the companies that uh, we've reported to them. And if they find that these companies are involved in human rights, they can withdraw their funding from these actors, and that's what that's what we're really hoping for. But I think, you know, in general, if you look at, you know, what the divestment movement has accomplished, you know, it's created what I think is, is global attention to 
the critical role that banks play in indigenous human rights violations. And because of that, we've been able to really look at how oppression is financed and that every oppression that indigenous peoples are facing has a unique financial aspect to it. And I think if we're able to understand how human rights abuses are financed, we're able to hopefully intercept the money before it is given to the companies responsible for those violations. My guest today is Michelle Cook. She's a human rights lawyer and founder of the Indigenous Women's Divestment Delegation to Europe, as well as a founding member of the Water Protector Legal Collective. To me, it's really interesting to see the depth of your work and to go beyond a picture of a protester and law enforcement. And there's just so much more behind all of that. Right. I think the divestment movement that occurred as a result of Standing Rock, which was a global movement, so many people contributed, so many people were involved in so many different ways. And collectively, that really made an impact that showed, you know, when you violate indigenous people's rights, there is a material consequence for that in your profit margins, in the reputation of your company. If businesses are going to knowingly violate indigenous people's rights, then they will bear the risk and they will bear the cost of the damage to their brand and their profits for this behavior. It's been really incredible to learn about how indigenous human rights violations are directly linked to international financial institutions. One wouldn't think that we are so fundamentally connected to Norway, but we are because of their investments in oil and gas that makes us connected to them. And if we can let them know how their investments are violating human rights, they have the opportunity to mitigate those human rights and to prevent them. And we're really hoping that actors like the financial sector in Norway and in Scandinavia can really lead the way and can set an example for the rest of the world, the U.S. financial sector, for example, and in Asia. So if we're able to get a precedent and to get some really good standards to emerge in Europe, then hopefully that will influence the rest of the financial sectors throughout the world. Was there a moment when you knew you had to do this work to begin doing this work or to learn more about it? Absolutely. You know, as a human rights lawyer, as someone who's very familiar with law, you know, I understand law is necessary for protecting our human rights, and so are the courts, but there's only so much that a court can do. From what I was witnessing, I was seeing, you know, as the court decision was still being determined, you know, the company kept moving forward despite the court, despite the domestic legal system. You know, the domestic legal system is often inadequate itself in fully protecting the human rights of indigenous peoples. And so if we understand that, then we can't place all of our cards, all of our survival in the hands of a court that is not moving fast enough to protect our rights and our survival as a peoples. We have to find other ways. We have to employ a diversity of tactics if we're going to survive. And especially with the reality of 12 years is is what some climate scientists are predicting in terms of climate change. So we have to be very strategic in how we move forward. 
um, not only as Indian people, but I think as, you know, American people, how are we going to work together to survive and to thrive in a good way in the face of, of climate catastrophe? And I think looking at the financial arena is part of how we stop oil and gas companies who are not only violating indigenous people's rights, but contributing to climate change, that we can use our knowledge of the financial sector to change their behavior through impacting their profits by saying that oppression is not a sustainable business practice. And that when individuals know and have information that their money is being used, you know, either for, you know, child prisons, essentially on the border, holding uh, immigrant people, whether it is, you know, the weapons industry or private prisons, when people know what their money is being used for, then they have a choice of whether or not they want to contribute to that. And I think when, when people have enough information, they don't want to contribute to businesses that are violating human rights, whether it's indigenous peoples or immigrant peoples or or the rights of American citizens. The economic human rights impacts every single one of us. Whether you're a Native American or you are a non-Indian or whether you're a black, it doesn't matter what race you are. Every single person is impacted by these financial institutions and we have to make them accountable. And on a personal level, that can be people's 401ks, their IRAs. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, our economy is still recovering from the financial crisis of 2008. And in that case, you know, you had banks that were selling subprime uh, mortgages and knowingly doing so. And then when the U.S. Department of Justice found out about it, we find, let's say, for example, Credit Suisse, a couple billion dollars for essentially causing a world recession and then you wonder if the fine is an adequate deterrent to a bank, and it's not really. You know, we have to figure out a better way of regulating the financial industry. We have to figure out a way and demand a way to regulate the financial institutions that hold the lives of American people in the palm of their hand. We have to release that grip. We have to understand what is at risk. And our economic well-being is so fragile when the banks of Wall Street are uncontrolled, when they are absolutely unregulated, when they can act with impunity. When you have banks like Credit Suisse who are contributing or are involved in human rights violations to any degree, there has to be a consequence. They have the responsibility to prevent and to mitigate that in their investments. They do that when we demand it. We have to ask and we have to push for that. The change won't just come from the financial sector and industry itself. The American people, we need to demand that our economic human rights are fulfilled and that we get to enjoy them uniquely as indigenous peoples and then also as American people. You're listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. My guest today is Michelle Cook. She's a human rights lawyer, a member of the Indigenous Women's Divestment Delegation to Europe, and also a founding member of Water Protector Legal Collective. For your whole adult life, you've been working on human rights issues and uh, pursuing studies in that regard. 
Yeah, I've been able to, um, you know, very, very lucky to be here in Tucson, where the community, I think, is one that does care about human rights. I was really fortunate to be um, taught by the late Jose Matus of the Indigenous Alliance Without Borders. And he was a Yaqui ceremonial elder who was advocating right until his passing for the rights of indigenous peoples here whose traditional territories are divided by the U.S.-Mexico border wall and its policies. I've been very thankful to um, have learned from many indigenous peoples and listened to their stories. Now, you know, being where I am and, and looking at the business and human rights aspect of indigenous human rights violations is really important. You know, businesses do have human rights due diligence processes that they are responsible for. You know, they are supposed to conduct due diligence on the risks of human rights abuses that could potentially happen prior to those business deals and transactions from occurring. So we're really trying to develop that discourse and that standard. What gives you hope? I have a lot of hope for the future. I mean, I've seen some really incredible courage and incredible valor in my opinion, when I look at what happened in Standing Rock, when I look back and think of even now all of the people, American Indian and non-Indian, who are really fighting for their human rights to their lands and to their well-being, to see so many people really give it their all is incredible. And, and I think that they're serving their country. When we have individuals who are fighting for human rights and defending human rights here in the United States, that's, that's a way of them serving our country in a way. And I'm, I'm so thankful to be able to have witnessed some of these young people fight so hard to protect our freedoms here in the U.S., to protect our rights to water, to protect our rights to property, to a, to a future, to have a healthy environment in the face of climate change, that people are still willing to put themselves at such great risk. You know, in, in the case of Standing Rock, for example, there was 836 cases of people who were arrested you know, and, and they gave that to protect the water. They sacrificed that of themselves, took at great risk to be witness to what was occurring to the Standing Rock people. That's incredible. And for as much as we may be divided right now as a country, you know, I think when we look at water, that is a way to unite all of us. You know, and it doesn't matter if you are a undocumented person or if you're a Native American or if you're non-Indian or if you're a Muslim. What is the difference between us all when we all need water to drink, uh, when we all depend on the environment to sustain us? I really hope that these crisis moments will be a catalyst to bring us together. But we have to be very vigilant because it's also in crisis when we are easily divided. You know, right now we need to come together as a people, as American people, to protect one another. I think there's a lot of uh, examples of that happening. And I definitely see the opposite, though, too. I see a lot of um, work to divide the American people. And I think, you know, any time someone's trying to divide you, any time someone's trying to make you hate another human being or make you fear them, you really need to question what their motive is, question why they're telling you that. I think that we are a powerful people. I think that we're a strong people. I think that we don't have to move through fear, that we can move through love and coherence and fact. And we can use that to come up with solutions to all of the different problems that we're facing. And and whether that is, 
you know, the financial aspect of the human rights violations or, or whether that is, you know, inadequacies of domestic law, there are ways for us to come together when we put our mind to it. And I think that the uh, divestment movement that occurred in 2016 and that I feel like is still really emerging is an incredible example of the world collectively coming together to say, no, we aren't going to stand back and watch Indian people being mistreated like this. And the world responded. The world responded in a collective way to withdraw its money from that project. I think that's incredible. And if we can get more education and get more people to understand that they have power in the palm of their hand that is the size of a credit card, that that bank account, that that choice of your choice to consume your choice of where you want to buy something, that that gives you power, whether or not you may be an elder person, you may be a disabled person. But as long as you have that economic choice of where you want to buy something, then you can take a stand for indigenous human rights. And it's something that everyone can participate in. If you're a consumer, you have the ability to put your money and your time into businesses that are invested in human rights that want to protect people, not hurt them. And I, and I think that that's incredibly powerful because that every single person on the planet can participate in making the world a better place through their economic choices. My guest today is Michelle Cook. She's a human rights lawyer and founder of the Indigenous Women's Divestment Delegation to Europe as well as a founding member of the Water Protector Legal Collective. People can learn more at Women's Earth and Climate Action Network uh, website. Our website is the uh, Divest, Invest, Protect website on uh, the We Can page. People can also look up Mazaska Talks. That's another organization that is doing a lot of great work. And then, of course, there's many struggles that are ongoing now. The individuals who are currently fighting the tail end of the Dakota Access Pipeline, for example, in Louisiana, you know, they, they are, that is an ongoing struggle that needs attention. Individuals, you know, are currently fighting against the Line 3 Pipeline in Minnesota. And there's individuals who are also fighting the uh, Atlantic Coast Pipeline. There's many different areas to get involved in. There's still a continued need to demand uh, that these companies, the businesses, the banks withdraw their funds from these harmful projects. And there's still so much work to be done in supporting indigenous human rights in this way. I think, you know, economic human rights for indigenous peoples is a life and death question. Um, indigenous peoples are always at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, if you will. I mean, there's some reservation communities where the life expectancy is 42 years old for an adult male. So we are constantly, you know, observing the disparities of wealth and all of the impacts that that disparity has on health or, you know, um, educational uh, attainment. You know, my grandma, she is a traditional Dene elder. She, um, does not speak English. Um, she only speaks Diné Pitsad. She only speaks Navajo. And she supported her family through weaving. You know, she would weave these incredible rugs and then she would pawn them. 
And uh, she would basically take whatever the pawn individual would give her. She would pawn these beautiful rugs for like $100 to support her family. So, you know, our people are in such an economically vulnerable position that we have to really protect their economic human rights. And we have to understand structurally what are the structures that are preventing the enjoyment of those human rights. So for example, small loans and and predatory payday loans are a really terrible problem on Navajo Nation right now. For example, you know, in the state of New Mexico, the APR is 175% on a small loan. So you have, um, you know, individuals and elderly people who are already in poverty, you know, like my grandma, maybe they don't even speak English, who go to these loan places, take out a loan that has an interest rate that makes it absolutely impossible to uh, pay back. And then they end up being harassed and then giving their social security monies to these predatory lenders. And all the while, you know, these, these predatory businesses are just raking in the cash on the very blood, sweat and tears of our elders and our most, most vulnerable people. And so we have to understand how to stop that. And, and at least in the state of New Mexico, there's a bill that is being proposed now to cap the interest rate to 36 percent. And, you know, Arizona, thankfully, capped its interest rate for small loans at 36 percent. We need a cap on um, the small payday loans, you know, not only in New Mexico, but anywhere in Indian country where our people are going to be um, a victimized as a result of structural poverty, we have to be able to look at these issues and to help our most vulnerable people from being exploited in this way. I think it's incredibly important that people begin to redefine their relationship to money and to really question what is value. It's not enough anymore to understand a bank as, oh, this is just a place where I keep my money. And this is just a plastic card that's in my back pocket. We need to really understand as American people what money is, what value is in a more sophisticated way so that we are able to really have enough information to make wise decisions about where we put our money, where we're investing our money, and how we can create economic well-being economic security, truly, because if our well-being is tied to financial industries that are not regulated, we continue to put our own self at risk for financial insecurity and instability. So it's imperative that we have conversations about how we relate to money, but also I think fundamentally really questioning what value is, what finance is. You know, as an indigenous person, You know, we had trade and our own economic systems for thousands of years prior to contact. And those financial systems were not based on extraction, were not based on fossil fuels, were not based on Wall Street. But our societies and our civilization sustained itself through these other economic modalities, if you will. And what can we learn from looking back as indigenous peoples? What can we learn looking back at our economic systems? And how can those observations 
help us redefine what an economic future should look like that is not based on fossil fuel extraction, that is not based on private prisons, that is not based on the oppression of any person or living thing. And how do we imagine what that's going to be? How are we going to look into the future that is yet to come? And that's really what I hope that the campaign can help, that we're not only asking for disinvestment from fossil fuels and from rights abusing companies, but we're asking for an investment in the future. We're asking for investment in Indian women. We're asking for investments in what world that's going to look like. Because we know where we are now is not working. We know where we are now, that the climate scientists say we have 12 years. And we know that our current economic system is based on fossil fuel. So if we knock that out, what are we going to build our economies on? And moreover, not just renewable energy. In a lot of my talks and travels, I say, well, you know, what, what's the point of breaking free of fossil fuels if our people are still treated as second-class citizens? So not only do we have to break our dependence on the extractive industries that are hurting the collective, but we also have to think, you know, how are we going to also dismantle the systems of oppression that have made only eight men able to own half of the world's resources? Why is it only men that are in control of the financial industry? So it's also gender. Women need to be involved. People of color need to be involved. Indigenous peoples need to be involved. Their knowledge needs to inform and be the center of the economic future that we create. How do we center indigenous peoples and indigenous women as the key voices in creating that just future, the sustainable future that we all deserve? I think the delegations, that's really part of what we're doing. We're trying to put indigenous women back to where they belong, back to where they belong, which is at the head of the economic decision-making of their family, of their collectives, of their tribes, that they have a place in that. And there is value in the indigenous people's wisdom right now. The financial industry needs to listen. It needs to change. It needs to be able to respond and to adapt to what the evidence is saying that we have to change the fossil fuel economy. I think that indigenous peoples and indigenous women are going to be part of the solution of getting us out of this existential crisis of climate change and also hopefully democratizing and making racial justice within financial industries, that these decisions often disproportionately impact people of color and that people of color have to be the solutions. So we have to center them. We have to center women. We have to center LGBTQI people as well in those conversations. We'll have to leave it there. My guest today has been Michelle Cook. She's a human rights lawyer, founder of the Indigenous Women's Divestment Delegation to Europe, and a founding member of the Water Protector Legal Collective. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all other recent episodes of 30 Minutes at kxci.org.